Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, welcome, everybody, to Scholars and Scribes, uh, where our distinguished panel is going to discuss some of the prominent cases from the recently completed term, and are going to offer some reflections about what it all means. Uh, my name is John Malcolm. I'm the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies uh, at the Heritage Foundation. We have a lot to cover and not a lot of time, so I will be keeping our speaker introductions very short so that we can spend as much time as possible hearing from them. Uh, so if I would ask uh, our panelists to, uh, to join us now on camera while I do these introductions. Uh, so we're going to be hearing from uh, Jeffrey Harris. Jeff is a partner at the Consovoy McCarthy firm. Uh, after graduating from Harvard Law School, he clerked for judges David Sentel and Lawrence Silberman on the DC Circuit, and then for Chief Justice John Roberts. He previously served as Associate Administrator uh, of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIRA, and was also a partner uh, at the firms of Bancroft PLLC and Kirkland and Ellis. He's litigated a number of high-profile cases in appellate courts across the country, and this past term, he argued the Bostock case in the Supreme Court on behalf of the employers. Uh, we're joined by Eric Olson. Eric is the Solicitor General for the state of Colorado. After graduating from the University of Michigan Law School, he clerked for Judge John Habern of the Western District of Kentucky, Judge Harry Edwards of the DC Circuit, and for Justice John Paul Stevens on the Supreme Court. Prior to becoming Solicitor General, Eric was a partner at the firm of Bartlett Beck. We are pleased to have a returning guest, Adam Liptak. Adam covers Supreme Court and other legal developments at the New York Times. After graduating from Yale Law School, he handled First Amendment matters at Cahill Gordon and for many years at the legal department of the New York Times before moving over to the, to the uh, reporting staff as the legal correspondent. He's taught courses on Supreme Court and the First Amendment at Columbia Journalism School and at several law schools, including Yale, University of Chicago, and UCLA. And he is the author of To Have and Uphold, The Supreme Court and the Struggle for Same-Sex Marriage. We also have as a returning uh, panelist, Jess Braven. Since 2005, Jess has covered the Supreme Court and other legal issues for the Wall Street Journal, having previously worked as a reporter at the Los Angeles Times. A graduate of Berkeley Law School, Jess has also taught at a number of different graduate schools, and he is the author of two books, Squeaky, The Life and Times of Lynette Alice Frome and The Terror Courts, Rough Justice at Guantanamo Bay. Well, gentlemen, let's get right to it. And Jeff, let's start with you. So the first case I think I'd like to discuss is Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California, in which the court addressed the issue about whether the Trump administration could end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program. In an opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, joined by the, the so-called liberal justices on the court, the court threw a monkey wrench in the administration's plans. What happened in that case and what do you think it means? Well, thank you, John, and uh, uh, to Heritage for having me. It's great to be here um, and to kick right off with a, um, with a low profile one. Um, so the DACA case, going back to 2012, um, the Department of uh, Homeland Security issued a, th under the Obama administration, issued a three-page memorandum um, that announced two major policy initiatives on immigration. 
So first, for those who met certain specified criteria, such as being brought to the U.S. as a child, uh, being in school, having a clean criminal record, um, the administration would not initiate removal proceedings against you, so you can stay in the country. Second, and perhaps more controversially, um, the, the program would allow people to uh, obtain a status that would essentially get them work authorizations, eligibility for benefits, eligibility for Social Security and Medicare, and things like that. So this was not done through notice and comment regulation or through rulemaking. And interestingly, it was done shortly after the Obama administration had failed to enact legislation um, that would have locked in this policy. 2014, uh, the administration expanded the DACA program to more people and also added a new program for parents of, of DACA recipients called DAPA. Um, the Fifth Circuit, um, after that program was challenged by some states, enjoined it. And in the term where Justice Scalia had passed away and the court was um, only eight justices, that was affirmed uh, by a four to four vote. So now we get up to 2017, the Trump administration comes in and rescinds the DACA program solely on the ground that the program was illegal. So just as it was enacted with the three-page memo, um, the, this administration issued its own sort of three-page memo that said, we think it's unlawful, cited the Fifth Circuit case, um, and said, DAPA was previously held unlawful by the Fifth Circuit, we think DACA is unlawful, and so we will rescind it. Um, it was promptly challenged by a lot of groups, including individuals, universities, states, and others, which, which gets it to the Supreme Court. So in a 5-4 decision by the Chief Justice, um, the court found that the rescission violated the Administrative Procedure Act. And the core reasoning was, it wasn't enough for DHS to just cite the prior uh, decision in validating DAPA, um, because what, what the Chief's opinion said is, the, the Fifth Circuit opinion had focused mostly on the benefit side about why it was unlawful to confer benefits um, to people in the DACA program. But the chief said the administration didn't adequately explain its the forbearance piece of why they were rescinding um, the, the, the stay of removal for people in the program. So the chief said, for example, the administration should have considered alternatives such as you eliminate the benefits, but you continue to forbear from removing people. Um, the chief also said um, that the DHS hadn't considered the reliance interests of people in the program. So you might be in school, making decisions about your life, making decisions about your families, et cetera, and, and that, that, that DHS didn't adequately consider those things. Um, the dissent by um, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh said the whole program was unlawful because it, quote, conferred lawful presence on an entire class of aliens in the absence of either statutory authority or even notice and comment. Um, last thing about the opinion itself, there was an equal protection claim that it was that the rescission was motivated by animus based on um, some statements the president had made during the campaign and others. And eight justices rejected that and said, you know, we, we're not going to sort of attribute any racial motive to any of this. Um, only Justice Sotomayor would have agreed with that. So my takeaway um, on all of that, you know, people can debate in good good faith the wisdom of the DACA program, whether this is good policy, but I think the decision is pretty troubling as a matter of administrative law. So the core holding is that DHS didn't do enough to explain why it was rescinding the forbearance piece as opposed to the benefits and work eligibility piece. But the forbearance piece seems to me at least like the piece that's the most discretionary because it pertains to the executive's ability to enforce the law. So for example, if the Obama administration said, we're not going to prosecute 
most low-level drug offenders. But then the Trump administration came in and said, we don't agree with that. We're going to start bringing these prosecutions. No one would say that they had to sort of show their work or explain that. That's sort of core sort of executive core. executive discretion. And so so that 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 seems like an oddity. And I also think it's interesting. You would think if the majority, I think even the majority conceded that the benefits piece that there were pretty good arguments that that expansion was unlawful. So it's unclear why the court wouldn't have upheld the rescission of the benefits piece and then maybe remanded for more explanation on on the forbearance piece. Um, and so, you know, again, even the majority didn't seriously dispute and the chief pretty much said that he he agreed. I mean, the chief in 2016 probably voted to say the benefits were unlawful. So last thing I'll say um, on this case, I think it led to a big asymmetry in administrative law as well. So DACA was this hotly contested program affecting millions of people that was created by a three-page memo from DHS. There was no statute, there was no notice and comment, there was no rulemaking, um, and yet you know, this resulted in a special status and benefits going to millions of people. But yet when, when this administration tried to rescind it, also through the proverbial three-page memo, there was all of a sudden a heightened uh, burden of explanation. There were reliance interests at stake. The court said they had to do all this extra work. So it seems it seems kind of asymmetrical. And I think, you know, I, I think this decision rewards um, what was a very very aggressive and questionable use of executive and administrative power. And and I think it creates bad incentives for outgoing administrations because it suggests that as long as you act unilaterally, get some reliance interests out there. Um, that even if there are questions about whether that's lawful, the next administration um, will have to so still sort of show all of its work to, to rescind that. So, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, this rewards what was a pretty questionable administrative process. And also, it'll make it harder for elections to have consequences when you're dealing with administrative law. Right. So I'm going to I'm going to move on, but if any of the other panelists, if you have something you just you really want to say about the, the you know the case we just discussed, just let me know. Raise your hand or something, and I'm happy to to call on you. Um, but okay, let's let, let's move on to the next case. And Adam, let's turn to you, uh, and let's discuss uh, Bostock versus Clayton County, which might have been the most surprising uh, case of the term. I'd be curious if you, if you share that view. Uh, so Justice Gorsuch, uh, joined by the Chief Justice and Justice Breyer, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Ginsburg. Uh, issued an opinion holding that a federal law uh, that protects employees against discrimination on the basis of sex also protects employees uh, against discrimination on the basis of their sexual, orient uh, sexual orientation or gender identity. What struck you about this case? Well, as you suggest, John, the first thing that strikes one is the lineup. For us to have a six to three uh, decision on uh, gay and transgender rights, with Justice Gorsuch writing and the chief joining, uh, came as a surprise to a lot of people who thought that with the departure of Justice Kennedy, who wrote all four of the major constitutional gay rights decisions, we were going to see a different kind of outcome, particularly because it was a statutory case. Um, and although we are all textualists now, it turns out that textualism is uh, a malleable concept, and it really would not be hard. It was not hard for the two sides to write this backwards or forwards to say whether the phrase because of sex necessarily encompasses sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination, 
or whether you should, and I, I, I put the, the sense in two separate categories, whether you should look at the original public contemporaneous meaning of those terms. And I don't think there's much dispute that neither the lawmakers nor the general public thought that those words encompassed sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination, or, and I would put the Kavanaugh dissent in the second category, or whether you, you just don't approach the text in a hyper-literal way, as Justice Gorsuch has been accused of, uh, but in a more common sense way. And there too, the arguments on the two sides uh, are, are, are all of them plausible. I think what you saw with the court was that the American public is shocked to learn that in 2020, it's not against the law to discriminate against gay people or transgender people. And the polling numbers on this were quite overwhelming. And although, you know, the justices purport to be uh, applying neutral legal principles, they're not insensitive to public opinion. And the last thing I'll say is that the chief's vote is a little bit surprising. Uh, he was in the majority, and had he been in the majority from the start, uh, he had the power, of course, to assign the case to whomever he wanted. And I would think that in such a major case, particularly argued in the in the before all the other cases were rolled out, argued in the first sitting, he would have assigned it to himself. Uh, I think that suggests that he was not in the majority to begin with. That Justice Ginsburg then would be the senior justice in the majority. And she would have assigned it to Gorsuch, who was in play at a minimum at the argument. And if he's with you, you want to lock him in. And it does suggest that the chief who ended up this term being in the majority 98% of the time, dissented only twice, may have gone along for the ride. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Nelson Lund just referred to this as living textualism. We'll see whether the <laughs> phrase uh, the phrase sticks. And I, I you know, I. I suppose it's not surprising. Uh, the, the greenhouse effect may not be there anymore, but if the justices are reading you and Jess, that would not surprise me uh, uh, either uh, in terms of forming their opinions. Yeah, that was a surprising uh, uh, case. And I think your analysis about how that case got assigned strikes me as being, being correct. All right, uh, so Jess, let's turn to you. And you have a trio of cases. So there were three uh, major religious liberty cases of this term. There was Espinosa versus Montana in which the court, in a five to four opinion by the chief justice, who wrote a lot of the major opinions, held that the application of Montana Constitution's no aid provision, which is one of these so-called Blaine amendments that exists in many state constitutions, um, that applying that to a state tuition assistance program violated the free exercise rights of parents who wanted to send their children to private religious schools. The second case was Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Baru, in which the court, in a 72 opinion by Justice Alito, gave a pretty broad reading uh, to the ministerial exception, which exempts religiously affiliated institutions from employment discrimination laws. And finally, the Little Sisters of the Poor uh, versus Pennsylvania, those plucky nuns were back at the Supreme Court. Uh, and the court, by a 72 decision by Justice Thomas, held that the Trump administration, through its various departments, could, under the Affordable Care Act, promulgate rules exempting employers with religious and moral objections from providing contraceptive coverage to their employees. So pretty strong coverage for religious adherence uh, from the court again this term. What were your impressions? What struck you about this trio of cases? 
Well, it seems to me that the uh, the expansion of religious rights is one of the hallmarks of Chief Justice Roberts' uh, leadership on the court. Uh, these are, were cases where uh, they were very much uh, in line. In fact, I cannot think of any major religious rights case uh, that we've had in recent years where the religious interests uh, have not prevailed, uh, always with the support of the conservative members of the court and sometimes with a more moderate and even all the liberal members of the court. Uh, what we're seeing here is actually uh, it, it's a it's a um, uh, a heads uh, uh, I win tails you lose uh, uh, situation for the uh, religious interests because they are getting access to state programs, public programs on equal footing with secular programs, despite these uh, state constitutional uh, measures or state laws. Uh, but they also are getting the right to uh, exempt themselves from some requirements uh, that are generally applicable. Uh, because of their religious beliefs and religious practice. So it really represents, I think, uh, a view of, uh, of religious liberty as an elevated right, one that uh, deserves special protection uh, uh, from law. I mean, it's, it's interesting as well to see the way that, uh, uh, that uh, for instance, in, the, uh, in the, uh, the Little Sisters case, or, the, or, or Trump versus PA, the Little Sisters intervened in that case, even though they were themselves exempt from the, the, the contraceptive uh, requirement, um, th that, uh, that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, under which uh, part of that the decision is based, has been applied by uh, the Chief Justice and the majority on the court in a way that's far beyond what the original author of the doctrine might have imagined. It all dates back, of course, to the early 60s with the Sherbert versus Verner with a Justice Brennan opinion that said the South Carolina uh, Employment Department could not deny benefits to um, a, uh, a Seventh-day Adventist who wouldn't work on Saturdays while allowing uh, other uh, uh, applicants to not work on Sundays. And he said, well, that's, you know, there's no justification of burden that's religious practice. Now we see uh, it being applied in a very, very broad way, which actually does, as the dissenter said, disadvantage women employees of uh, those covered organizations who lose benefits and uh, without any effort to replace them. So it's a very, very broad conception of the, the uh, bounds of religious liberty. Interesting also, I think, to note that although the Espinoza case, the, uh, the constitutional case from Montana was a standard five-fold split, we did see uh, I guess the center left or the moderate liberal justices joined uh, Justice Thomas, uh, at least for part of the uh, Little Sisters case, and uh, joined Justice uh, Alito in the employment discrimination case. So I think that we have to see, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the Chief Justice moving or accommodating the, the left wing of the court. I think these are instances where uh, we may be looking at the, the center left justices, Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan, perhaps uh, themselves uh, uh, cutting their sails to uh, accommodate and to make uh, find common ground that they might not choose on their own uh, with the conservative or the, or the center right of the court. So in other words, if the chief justice's project, as he has said, is that we're not Republicans or Democrats, we, we rule based on the law, we can't be easily pigeonholed. If he wants to send that as an overarching message of this, term, which I think there's some reason to believe, uh, the moves of those uh, liberal justices uh, should, should also be noted. Yeah, it's interesting you, you point that out because that same sort of Ginsburg and Sotomayor on one side, Breyer and Kagan on the other side was not only evident in these cases, you saw it in the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case too, where they're sort of saying, well, I agree that there were procedural problems 
uh, or they, they could do it, but they're, they're leaving themselves the room of, well, when we actually get to the merits, I might determine that this is arbitrary and capricious, or if we actually uh, had the masterpiece cake shop before a panel that wasn't clearly biased, you know, they, they might be able to uh, rule the same way as they did, but they're, they are sort of staking out that, that, that middle ground and there is that difference. Yeah. They basically did uh, to the chief what he did to them and say, uh, you know, the the DACA case. In other words, he's you know they're fine, or or the uh, or the or the abortion case. You know, you're basically finding a technical reason to agree without uh, jumping in with both feet. Right, right. Well, speaking of the abortion case, let's uh, let's move on to that, Adam. I'll I'll turn to you. So I, I asked you before about. Uh, the Bostock case, which was a very controversial case this term, uh, and June Medical uh, Services versus Adam, or now versus Russo, uh, uh, certainly was a controversial, and also, like Bostock, very disappointing to, to conservatives. Uh, and in that case, the Chief Justice provided the fifth vote, striking down a Louisiana law that the Chief clearly thought was a valid and constitutional law. What was going on with that? So in 2016, the court uh, strikes down a Texas law. Texas law requires physicians to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. And Breyer, writing for the majority, says it confers no health benefits on women and it makes it much harder to get abortions. And the chief is in dissent. The chief thinks that law is fine. The same case, really, literally the same words of the statute come to the court out of Louisiana, but there's been a change of personnel on the court. And I think the idea offended the chief that you could simply take advantage of that fact, that there's a change in personnel at the court and think you're going to get a different result. To be sure, he thought the Texas law was okay. But now he votes to strike down the Louisiana law. Uh, because why? Because stare decisis, because respect for precedent compels you when you have the same case just four years later, and particularly in the context of a change in personnel at the court, not to present to the public the idea that the court is a political institution that turns merely on who's been placed on the court. And you said this is a disappointment to conservatives, John, and in one sense, of course, it is. But in another sense, it shouldn't be because respect for precedent is uh, a, a serious thing. I sh would go a little further, though, that the chief, uh, in a footnote, uh, casts a vote that he really didn't need to cast. And he rejected an argument that would have been a very sweeping argument that abortion providers uh, don't have standing to bring claims on behalf of women. And it would have been quite easy for him not to express a view on that. Uh, it would have, or, 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 or to say uh, in dicta, because uh, Louisiana had really, in fact, abandoned that argument. In dicta to say in, in an appropriate case, it would be a serious issue, yet uh, he goes the other way. Um, so what does this tell us about abortion going forward? I think very little. I think uh, other abortion restrictions uh, would get a sympathetic hearing from the chief. Um, I think it tells us very little about Roe v. Wade, although Justice Kagan has really made it a project to try to buttress the chief's instincts for respect for president in other cases, notably, notably Ramos. 
the uh, unanimous jury's case. Um, so in the scheme of things, I think minor, uh, the left takes the view that this is some kind of machination, that the chief justice has depth charges, that he's larded into his opinion. And I think the left should take yes for an answer. This was uh, maybe a short-term victory only, but, but an actual victory. It's true that Justice Breyer, as is his want, uh, was interested in balancing interests and the chief uh, really rejecting that balancing approach, which was also the approach in the Texas case, was inclined to have a more categorical, Casey-based, substantial obstacle sort of analysis. Uh, but on the whole, it's it, the, the left should be happy with the result. Uh, and I don't know that the right should be so unhappy with it, because stare decisis is a conservative principle, after all. So I'm I'm curious to get your view and, and the views of other panelists, too. So obviously, the chief has in the past uh, overturned opinions. I mean, you, you mentioned mentioned Ramos, but the Nick case and Janice uh, case, he has certainly shown uh, you know, Citizens United that when he, he wants to overturn precedent, he can. And usually, if the precedent is has stood the test of time and there are reliant interests, if it's a longer standing precedent, uh, it usually gets more deference than a, a very, very short term precedent. And I'm but you raise the interesting point about, well, there was a change of, of personnel on the court, which is why conservatives were sort of bucking up and hoping for victory. And maybe that aspect of things uh, offended uh, the chief. And I'm curious to get the views of, of you know, any of you. Yeah, yeah, Jeff, go ahead. So I think, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, I think the what the chief basically did was defer to and um, sort of give stare decisis effect to the outcome of of whole women's health um, in that he seems to accept the notion that an admitting privileges law that looks like the Texas one, even if there were many differences in the record, is close enough that he enjoined it. But I think the chief who cast the decisive okay. fifth vote effectively overturned 98% of the reasoning of whole women's health. I mean, this, this balancing thing is a big deal because if it doesn't sound like much, you, you know, you always balance the benefits and burdens, but if you accept as a lot of the abortion groups do, that abortion is very safe. Well, in that circumstance, the 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 any burden, even a minimal one, will will outweigh the benefits. And so, interestingly, right now, in virtually every abortion case that I'm aware of, there have been pretty serious briefing fights over what the decision means. And I think the states in those cases are all certainly citing the chief's opinion, I think, correctly for the proposition that these freestanding balancing tests can't work anymore. And that under the current law, there has to be a substantial obstacle. And if there's not, then the state wins, period. Um, which I, I think, whatever you call that, that overturned the reasoning of whole women's health. But that's just me. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. All right, well, Eric, let's uh, let's let's bring you in on uh, on this. So, on the last day of the term, uh, the court handed down Trump versus Mazers and Trump versus Vance, a couple of seven to two opinions, both by the Chief Justice, wrote all these major opinions uh, involving the president's financial records. One of the case involved a criminal investigation, a grand jury investigation that's being conducted 
uh, by Cyrus Vance Jr., the Manhattan District Attorney, and the other involved subpoenas that were issued by three House subcommittees purportedly uh, for a legislative purpose. And the, the cases kind of came out differently. What were your impressions about, uh, about these two cases? Well, thanks, John, and thanks for, for having us and for all the support the Heritage Foundation provides to all the states out there as we do Supreme Court work. I'm really glad to be here. I would say really continuing the vein of what we just talked about, um, of course, in the, the House subpoena case, uh, John Roberts adopted a totally confusing balancing test that is required before going forward for the House to uh, enforce a subpoena. And I think when, to me, what is surprising is that how skillfully and almost blatantly political the chief was in these cases where he was one focused on ensuring the legitimacy of the court remains sort of untarnished, that it wasn't a naked political decision in favor of Trump. Um, and, and, and even though I think particularly the House case uh, created some new and substantial obstacles to the House enforcing these subpoenas, it was, it was sort of heralded in the press as a as an anti-Trump decision and one that didn't just follow the party line. So I think he sort of achieved a instrumental goal of secondly, having the court be more important than it was before the decision because he creates these vague four-factor tests that only the court gets to decide now uh, when a, a subpoena meets that test. And then third, in the Vance case, which is the, the state case, was able to really drive home some very strong rhetoric, attract a strong coalition of uh, justices to say basically no man is above the law, even the president, in a way that really conferred legitimacy on the independence of, of the court. And so I think when you look at the difference between the balancing test we were just talking about in the, the, the abortion case, where the chief, and I agree with Jeff, I think he really gutted a lot of the, the reasoning of whole women's health to come out with a, with a very straightforward and much more uh, abortion restriction friendly, um, for the reason Jeff identified, rule. Whereas here, I think the, the balancing test is, is a feature, not a bug, that allows for the court to maintain significant authority uh, over the, this dispute, not be left on the sidelines like it has been for the past 200 years here, and nonetheless preserve legitimacy uh, of the court in the eyes of the public, which I think when you look at a lot of these cases, uh, you can really see a common thread of, of Chief Justice Roberts wanting to make sure that, that the institution of the court uh, is significant and, and remain sort of unsullied in spite of a lot of the high profile rhetoric we've heard over the past few years um, uh, because of the, the challenges brought uh, to the Trump administration conduct at the court. So one of the things that surprised me a little bit was one, the, the absolute rejection of the president's arguments that he is entitled to absolute uh, immunity during his time in office. That that didn't surprise me so much as as the fact that the argument had been made. Well, you know, one of the precedents we need to consider is is the Nixon case, and in the Nixon case, we required the prosecutor to make a heightened showing of a real need for these documents. They couldn't get they couldn't obtain them in any other way, and and you you had to really show put your, lay your cards down as to what you, were, what you were seeking these documents for, why you really, you really needed them. Uh, and, uh, you know, 
Kavanaugh picked up on this, Gorsuch picked up on this, and their in their opinions concurring in the judgment, but nobody else really picked up on it, and nobody else paid attention to an argument that I thought Jay Sekulow stressed during his oral argument that, hey, we're now in state court. These are elected prosecutors. It's the, politically, it's a lot more sensitive. There are you know, two, three thousand uh, elected DAs. And all it takes is somebody wanting to score political points against the president, and the president is all bollocked up. The justices really didn't pay much attention to any of those, to any of those arguments. And I was wondering whether that surprised anybody. I guess I'll just offer a brief observation on this, which is I really think this is an example where excellent advocacy made a difference in the court's outcome. And particularly when you listen to the argument by the House's lawyer and by Sivance's lawyer, it, he, the Sivance's lawyer was very pragmatic, conceded a lot of ground about federal court jurisdiction, the ability of courts to weigh in as a check, whereas the House's lawyer, when asked sort of the most obvious question, which is, do you have a limiting principle for what a valid le legislative purpose is? He said no. And, 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 and I think here the advocacy made a real difference, and the advocacy by Vance's lawyer at oral argument made Jay Sukulo's point seem a little extreme because he said, here's a solution. Don't worry. We can decide that case. In, in an, if that's the case, we can decide it in that case, not this one. Here's all these checks on this one. Nothing to see here. I, I thought it was one of the most exceptional moments of advocacy I saw this year. Adam, you I, wanted to say something? I completely agree with that. I, I draw a couple quick distinctions. The Nixon tapes case was about official conduct. It was about material that Nixon had possession of. This is about private conduct. This is material held by third parties. So the burden on the president in one sense is zero. Um, so the the Vance case uh, will, will outlive this presidency. Let's assume the president loses. Uh, that case will continue. The House case set some legal principles, but the House is not a continuing uh, institution, and the chances of Trump running out the clock on the on the House case are quite strong. The criminal inquiry is, is likely to go on, and whatever can be said about a sitting president's immunity from uh, investigation, uh, indictment, uh, it vanishes with his departure from office. Yeah, I, just to, to throw, in, I, I agree certainly that this uh, the the oral argument was uh, was one where that the House lost a ground that it didn't necessarily have to. If if uh, uh, if uh, if Doug Letter, the, the general counsel of the House, had had prepared some kind of plausible argument there, he might have preserved some of their their ground uh, in the future. But I think though, you know, if you want to you know pull back to reveal the the bigger picture here, I mean, the Chief Justice just happened to have presided uh, over a trial involving very serious allegations against the president earlier this year, certainly was very familiar with Jay Sekulow's advocacy and and was very familiar with a, you know, a, a, a strong, if not ultimately successful in the particular venue, uh, a prosecutorial argument uh, in the in the in the uh, Senate uh, chamber. So the the idea that, you know, you know, President Trump has 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 uh, he, he's been he's been a game changer uh, in in some ways, uh, and I think that a lot of the uh, sort of unstated or implied deference that the presidency gets has diminished over time. Uh, in the certainly in the chief justice's eyes, you look at the the travel ban case from the first year, where there was a lot of deference to the 
purported administrative uh, reasoning. You get to the census case last year, you get to DACA this year, and you get nothing. Like, we just don't believe you. You know, you're saying things that are clearly untrue about your reasons, and uh, you got to go and be honest about it. And and th there wasn't, uh, you know, the, the that seems to be where the, the chief is going. And in terms of giving, you know, pick a president who might somehow attract the attention of a criminal investigator um, among the, the 45 presidents we've had. This one might be one who, who would be in the top 10 list uh, to give him absolute immunity from what seems to be a very plausible criminal investigation building right out of a federal criminal conviction of Michael Cohen with very specific state laws at issue to give him absolute immunity from even an investigation uh, that that seemed to be something that 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 the, the the chief justice and really pretty much almost you have to say eight justices because you know Justice Thomas's dissent in that case reads almost like a concurrence as opposed to a, a dissent were not willing to go uh, go there so I, I think that that case was very significant and it was one that uh, you know just as just as the House of Representatives might have given up some ground and and won a little bit more if Jay Sekulow had, had given up some ground. Maybe he wouldn't have gotten a complete and, and utter uh, loss uh, in in the Vance case. So that's very interesting. I mean, setting aside your observations about the plausibility of the criminal investigation against the president, uh, I, I too have noticed that about the chief, seeing that sort of shift from the travel ban case, citizenship case, DACA uh, case. Uh, you also raise, of course, the fact that he was presided over the impeachment trial and and huge swaths of his opinion uh, are talking about another chief justice who presided over a very famous trial, Chief Justice Marshall in the Aaron Burr uh, treason trial. And I also thought it was interesting that after, you know, before the mandate is issued, he's given the green light to expedite arguments in the lower courts in the Vance case, but not in the House case. Uh, so I guess we will we will see where that yeah, all Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the, the quick final thought on that was that the chief really distinguished between these two official purposes. He seemed to feel a criminal inquiry into specific allegations was just more important than general legislative fact finding that uh, the House could possibly find what it needs to know from from extrinsic sources from the, the, the president's records. But he seemed to think that when you're talking about a, a specific uh, criminal allegation, a prosecutor, even a lowly state prosecutor, uh, uh, should be able to at least undertake these steps. Well, let's move on to the next case. Jeff, let's, re let's return to you. Uh, so the court issued an important separation of powers opinion in CELA law versus the Consumer oh, Finance Protection Bureau, in which the court, in a five to four decision by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, held that the structure of the CFPB, which is headed by a single director who could only be removed for cause, violated separation of powers. But the, that provision of the Dodd-Frank Act, which set up that structure, uh, was severable from the rest of the uh, of the act, that also had two excellent oral advocates, Canon Shamigan and Paul Clement, uh, involved. What were your impressions about uh, about that case? Sure. So um, there's long been this uneasy tension in separation of powers law regarding presidential power and presidential, you know, the unitary executive, so to speak. So Myers versus the United States is a landmark 1926 opinion by Chief Justice Taft, which says that removal runs with appointment and so very expansively the president needs to be able to remove officers because the president must ultimately take care that the laws be faithfully executed and if the president doesn't think the the lower officers are doing that the president has to be able to remove it so this very expansive view 
Um, but then 10 years later, you have a case called Humphrey's Executor from 1950, 1935, which says that Congress can create, quote unquote, independent agencies that are um, exercising what it calls quasi-legislative and quasi-judicial power. Um, and this very um, pro-insulation, pro-independence, you know, you need experts um, who are insulated from all politics and just taking wherever the, the facts take them. So ever since, in the 80 years uh, since then, there's been this kind of push and pull between president must supervise everyone versus um, Congress can limit the president's ability to do that. And so in, in SALA law, um, it's a big win. I mean, arguably a decisive win for the Myers camp. Um, the CFPB was somewhat unique. There's only a handful of agencies run by a single head who's insulated from removal except for cause. And so this gives one person extraordinary rulemaking authority, enforcement authority, fees collected by the Federal Reserve. And so it doesn't participate in, in the appropriation process um, and uh, have that same control over the budget that Congress and the president would often use. So um, basically, I, I think the takeaway of, of SALA law is Humphrey's executor the chief pretty much comes out and says that the reasoning hasn't stood the test of time. The the majority did not overrule it. Thomas and Gorsuch would have overruled it. Um, but I think for all intents and purposes, um, Humphrey's executor looks like it's mostly limited to its facts. It's hard to imagine a court expanding that decision. And I think this could well tee up challenges to other agencies such as the FCC, SEC, um, uh, and other multi-member agencies that have removal power. So a couple, uh, couple takeaways. I mean, this is a big deal for presidential power. Um, at, at the start of this administration, there was this very odd scenario where the head of the CFPB, who was a holdover, was issuing rules and taking actions that were completely contrary to the policy goals of this administration. Um, interestingly, when I was at OIRA, OMB, you could literally look across the street from 17th Street where the CFPB was. And this was all technically part of the same government, but you had Cordray over there pretty much doing his own thing with no accountability, you know, across the street to, to the folks who just got elected. Um, and so, you know, the, the chief noted with the five-year tenure of the CFPB, CFPB director, you could have gone a full presidential term with a holdover director in this critical financial role. So I think Realistically, um, uh, it's a big deal for political accountability. It's a big deal for elections having consequences. Um, and you know, the the last thing I'll note is I think this opinion really um, cements uh, Justice Kavanaugh as sort of the thought leader on a lot of these things. So the majority opinion in SALA law is stunningly similar to an opinion Justice Kavanaugh wrote a few years earlier on the DC circuit called PHH, and which at the time was this sort of groundbreaking opinion. Nobody had really done this work on single member agencies before. And now this, the Supreme Court basically took Judge, Judge, Judge Kavanaugh's DC circuit opinion, which later became a dissent on Bonk, and endorsed that as the law. The majority also relied heavily on free enterprise fund from uh, the Supreme Court, which also was based heavily on uh, then Judge Kavanaugh opinion on the DC circuit. So I think this is kind of the culmination of a lot of important work that Kavanaugh has been doing over the last you know, 10 years or more. And I think really kind of 
cements him, even though the chief wrote the opinion, I think it, it's really building on a lot of foundations that Kavanaugh had been working on for a long time. For a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I think this this opinion, the, there was the SEC case uh, from last year. I, I think you know, a lot more of these sort of separation of powers, appointment clause challenges, the CFPB, they're going to continue challenges as to how it gets its its funding. I remember at one point Richard Cordray was testifying and somebody asked something about, you know, how are you spending your money? And his response was, what business is it of yours since I don't get my money from you, <laughs> which, was, which was rather amazing. So I, I agree. I think it was a significant case. All right, Ray, let's get, let's get back to a, a case that your state uh, and possibly your office were in, involved in. Uh, so again, on the last day of the term, the court issued, and this surprised me a little bit, a unanimous opinion uh, by Justice uh, Kagan and Chiafalo versus Washington, resolving cases out of Washington and out of Colorado uh, holding that a state could punish a so-called faithless elector uh, by enacting laws punishing or removing uh, that elector, somebody who decides to vote for somebody other than the candidate who won the popular vote uh, in that state. Uh, so your law got upheld. Uh, and what were your impressions about uh, about that opinion? Well, we were very relieved because we lost to the 10th Circuit. Um, so we were very relieved that our law stayed on the books. Um, but really three observations here. I, I think I was struck as you were by the, the unanimity of the outcome, particularly uh, when during oral argument, we had some very pragmatic questions from Justice Kavanaugh, from Justice Alito about chaos theory of judging, that they have a principle uh, of, of judging that reduces chaos uh, and creates more certainty. Um, and, and in Justice Kagan's opinion, uh, she got basically seven votes uh, or, or she had seven justices signed on to her opinion, six other ones that were it's pretty extraordinary for what it said and what it didn't say. Um, it said things like the constitution doesn't answer this question. So we have to look at what happened since the constitution to help us understand what the answer is here. And and a, a lot of people I think would see that as, as you know, looking towards a living constitution type of approach to how we answer hard constitutional questions. And, you know, she got, um, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Roberts, Justice Alito sort of joined that frame of analysis, uh, which was surprising um, um, to us. Um, and then I also think that it was um, very important in how the court framed the issue that it was a really hard case. There are a lot of really important differences between the, the Washington case and the Colorado case. And it was clear, as we've been talking about before, that they really wanted to find common ground that everyone could sign on to. So they really elided a lot of the differences uh, and ignored some of the, the issues that had really caused problems in the lower courts uh, confronting these issues to make it seem like a, a pretty easy question to, that they just hadn't got around to answering when I think in fact it was a much more nuanced question, but they really wanted, my sense was the opinion was was crafted in a way to get everyone's support and and focus on certainty and not throw the nation into uh, more uncertainty about the electoral college uh, that we have going forward. And I think when you contrast that um, principle with the faith of electric case, the last thing I'll say really stands in stark contrast to the way the court has handled voting rights issues that haven't necessarily been published opinions. Adam wrote a great article about this just a few days ago about how the court has been very aggressive in preventing other federal courts from providing any kind of relief to voting issues that have arisen in the states uh, over the past few months. And the face of the case, it's 
sort of unanimity, its focus on certainty uh, and avoiding chaos really stands in stark contrast to what they've done on the shadow docket without the published opinions, but have really created a lot of uncertainty and a lot of confusion as they vacated district court orders right before elections um, that's caused a lot of consternation around the country. So it was a surprising outcome, particularly given how the court has handled the other voting issues that they faced this year uh, on the shadow docket. Yeah, Adam. And that's a testament to uh, to your good litigation strategy and also Larry Lessig's to get this case to the court in a setting where they could operate behind the veil of ignorance, where it doesn't arise in an emergency setting where you know who is going to benefit from a given ruling one way or the other. And I thought that was well litigated and smart for the court to take this at the last minute to make sure they could issue a decision uh, without knowing which side gets the benefits should we you know, find ourselves in a situation where a few faithless or rogue electors could uh, hold the keys to the very presidential election? Of course, thanks Adam. The other really striking point was the Supreme Court has issued one case that really answers a lot of questions presented in the faithless electors case. It's called Bush v. Gore. Uh, we didn't cite it in our briefing. The court didn't cite it uh, in their, Justice Kagan didn't cite it in their opinion. And I think it just goes to Adam's point that there's a real reluctance of the court to be seen as picking sides in a political controversy where the winners and losers are known. And that because this was presented in a more abstract way, it was much more palatable to the court and they were able to get much more agreement uh, than they could have had it been you know, a Trump v. Biden uh, situation in uh, December of this year. So you actually, uh, you, you point out something interesting, which is that, that Justice Kagan really wanted to get a unanimous court. And the only difference really in that regard between, other than factual differences, between the Washington case and your case was that Justice Sotomayor had recused herself because of a personal relationship with one of the faithless electors in, in the Colorado case. And so she could sign on to the opinion in Washington, and then in the Colorado case, it was basically per curiam, you know, <laughs> cite to cite to Chiapolo. And I guess the only thing I would add about this is that uh, if it, if the case had gone out the other way, uh, had come out the other way, it might have been a little bit problematic for the people who support the national popular vote movement because if a, if a state agrees that there may be other problems with the, that compact, but if they get to their goal of, of having enough states on, sign on to that compact, if an elector could be faithless, they could just say, well, I don't care what compact you entered into, I'm voting for my, you know, my person. And now, of course, that's, that's off the table. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. Well, we have one more case I want to get to before uh, we get to uh, you know, your impressions about what's going on. Uh, and so, Jess, let's, let's turn to you. So again, on the last day... Of the of the term uh, in McGirt versus Oklahoma, another surprise opinion by Justice Gorsuch in a five to four opinion that that Justice Gorsuch wrote, uh, joined by uh, uh, Kagan, Sotomayor, Ginsburg, and Breyer, they held that for purposes of the Major Crimes Act, roughly one third of Oklahoma and pretty much all of Tulsa is Native American territory. Who knew? So, what were your impressions about this case, and what does this mean? going forward? Well, I think this is actually a very significant case uh, uh, when it comes to the uh, U.S. government's relationship with uh, Native American 
nations. You know, this, uh, of course, was a replay of a case that was argued the previous term called uh, Murphy, Sharp versus Murphy, where the court split four to four. The issue was identical, but Justice Gorsuch was recused. So we uh, pretty much knew he was going to be the deciding vote when the case uh, came up again. It's uh, the same issue. And it's, and it's interesting that the case is really uh, uh, significant, not for the particular parties in it. I mean, the, 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 the people, you know, the, the plaintiffs who, who, uh, who brought the case uh, in uh, both the Murphy case and, and McGirt uh, were convicted uh, criminals uh, who happened to be members of the Muscogee Creek tribe whose offenses were committed on land that uh, had been reserved to that tribe. Uh, over a century ago, and the question was whether they were entitled to be convicted basically in a federal court as opposed to a state court. There wasn't any allegation that there was any procedural problems or unfairness or anything that specifically happened in their trials that was unconstitutional or wrong. It was really a, a procedural technical claim, but the implications turn out to be much broader, and that's what we're focusing on. Uh, essentially, did Congress by implication uh, eliminate the reservation it had granted to the Muscogee Creek Indian Nation uh, in the 19th century by essentially stripping that uh, reservation and that tribe of virtually all the attributes of autonomy that it once had had and that uh, other Native American tribes had uh, when it created the uh, or admitted the state of Oklahoma, I guess, in, in 19, 1907, 1909, right around, uh, right around there. Uh, and so here it was a, a, a very, uh, it, it was a, a quite uh, passionate opinion, both the uh, the majority opinion by Justice Gorsuch and the dissent by Chief Justice Roberts in this 5-4 case. Uh, let, let's recall that when Justice Gorsuch was nominated to the court, uh, there was significant support from Native Americans who were familiar with his record on the Tenth Circuit, which here is a lot of cases involving uh, Native American Right. So we already had a sense that he would be sympathetic to some of these treaty claims. And he was in a prior case last year involving Wyoming and uh, uh, Native American hunting rights uh, on uh, uh, on uh, tribal land um, in the state of Wyoming. So he comes in already known as being someone who takes very seriously uh, the treaties the United States made with Native American nations in past years. Uh, the opinion begins very dramatically with discussing the Trail of Tears uh, uh, and uh, of how the uh, the Creek Indians were uh, essentially driven from their uh, prior uh, land in Alabama and Georgia, uh, with perhaps the help of President Jackson, uh, and that he essentially goes through all the things that happened, but says that Congress never took the final step of formally disestablishing the Indian reservation, and therefore it still exists. I mean, it was a, it was in a sense a formalistic, uh, a textual uh, uh, reasoning that that Justice Gorsuch favors, but it also was uh, in some ways very passionate when he discussed the historical uh, record of the United States and its uh, less than uh, 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 less than faithful adherence to its promises to many Native Americans, and it's seemed that he was saying here as he draw this line. If Congress wants to strip them of their sovereignty, which uh, it, no one disputed that it can, being the, the, the victors, the conquerors, uh, conquerors in those wars, it can, but it must do so explicitly. Uh, and uh, the Chief Justice, it was interesting to read his opinion, you know, he, he portrayed the, the historical situation quite differently. I mean, he made a point of asserting that the Muscogee Creek Indians had allied with the Confederacy uh, and had, and had uh, slaves. 
so maybe they're not so innocent. It will seem to be the implication of that uh, historical uh, uh, notation. Uh, it's also interesting, I thought, to see how Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh uh, took very different positions on this case in an area that uh, they certainly had very strong legal reasons, but also seemed to be an area of personal interest as well. And I could only think back a bit to uh, uh, another case that had uh, overtones of historical injustices, the Flowers case from the previous term, where Justice Kavanaugh wrote a very long and itself very uh, passionate opinion uh, reaffirming uh, the, the Batson rule about uh, uh, racial bias and jury selection. Uh, and how, uh, although not a lot of new ground was plowed there, it certainly reaffirmed very forcefully this idea that uh, courts had to take a special uh, uh, grounds to prevent uh, racial bias that was endemic, uh, particularly in Southern courts uh, in, 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 in decades ago. Gorsuch dissented in, in that case. And so that, that you know, they, they, they seem to be, you know, different areas of, of the nation's history uh, seem to, to ring in, in different uh, tones uh, uh, for, for each of them. Well, it was certainly a rare win for Native Americans, and uh, there's a lot of this territory out there, and there are a lot of issues. This was for the Major Crimes Act, but there are tax law implications, other implications. We will we will see how that uh, how that all plays out. That was a bit of a that was a bit of a surprise. Well, so now I want to get to the portion. I, I we actually got through all these cases, which is great. Uh, I want to, we have the, about 20 minutes remaining, and I want to hear uh, from each of you sort of your impressions. So there's a lot we could talk about. So we ended up having these, these you know, teleconference uh, Zoom type arguments, and therefore Clarence Thomas asked questions, uh, and you know, the, the, the court had a major Second Amendment case on the docket, which it, which it punted as being basically moot, and at the end of the term, they denied certain a whole slew of Second Amendment cases. They did the same thing in a bunch of qualified immunity uh, uh, cases. And and sad to say, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whom we all wish well, uh, her health is now back in the news as she fights a fifth bout of, uh, of cancer. And obviously, the, the implications of that uh, are, are quite startling. Uh, so we, we can take this where we want, uh, wherever we want this to go. And, and so let's hear from each of you and then time permitting, we can just sort of have a general uh, discussion. So Jeff, let's start uh, start with you. What sort of struck you about uh, about the term and things to come? Yeah, a couple things. I mean, I think, I think that going back to a point that Eric had made earlier, I think the shadow, the so to speak shadow docket has been fascinating this year. Um, I think, a couple things are, and, and by shadow docket, I mean the emergency stays, injunctions, you know, the sort of non-merits case practice. Um, I think a few things are happening. I mean, I think you're seeing a lot of courts, uh, district courts in particular, or courts of appeals, especially with the Trump administration, are very trigger happy to enjoin things, um, whether in a specific case or nationwide. And I think the Supreme Court has pushed back on this. You know, I, I think the voting cases are a big deal. Um, so there, there were two. There was one out of Wisconsin where the district judge had had basically ordered in a primary election officials to be counting ballots cast after the date, and the, the Supreme Court by a five-four vote stayed that injunction. Um, and then just a few days ago or last week, um, from the other side. The 11th Circuit allowed Florida's felon voting law to go into force. So Florida says, if you're a felon, we'll restore your voting rights after you 
meet all conditions of your sentence, including any fines or penalties. The 11th Circuit did not grant a stay. The DNC sought a stay from the Supreme Court and the court denied it. So I think that it's a really um, important trend because as we get closer to the election, there's going to be more and more and more of these. And you're seeing the court saying, no, I think the message from these early stays is the federal courts should really be super careful about injecting themselves into an election or rewriting election rules. Um, and, and, you know, that could be a trend. And also, you know, there, there were these, these, um, shadow docket fights um, over the last few weeks over executions. I mean, the federal government resumed executions for the first time in many years, and a number of, of courts had blocked those or tried to enjoin those. And, you know, the Supreme Court, two or one, I think there were three or four of them, um, vacated all of those and allowed the the executions to proceed. So I think this is part of the chief's project about role of the courts. I mean, I think, again, the chief would would not like the courts to be deciding elections. And the chief probably thinks that the wisdom of capital punishment should be decided by the states and the voters and not by the courts. Um, and so I view a lot of these shadow docket things as part of what I think is one of the chief's broader, you know, goals of kind of, you know, hopefully having the courts get out of some of these disputes and leave them more to elected officials. Eric? I just echo what Jeff said. I also think it was really interesting. Well, there's two additional observations on that, which is I do think that that's one explanation that it's that the court's out of this role. And and another theory is that that on some of these issues, particularly when you look at the different ways that the court approaches voting issues, that there is more of a political valence to their decisions, but they know that they don't get the same level of scrutiny in these sort of shallow docket issues that they do on their full big published opinions. But you know, you look at Rucho, you look at um, Shelby County, and there's a real desire by by five members of the court to to, to basically step back and let elections go. And, and even when faced with some pretty objectively uh, disturbing conduct, they say that's it's not our uh, role to decide. And I think a really interesting point is when you look at what Justice Roberts means to protect the institution. It means, as Jeff said, which is to remove themselves from some of these in the fray uh, uh, decisions. But when you look at what Justice Kagan say views as the role of the institution, it is to be the decider of last resort on these important issues in the moment. So that the court is playing its role of policing uh, unconstitutional conduct in, in her view uh, around the country, even if it is last minute and even if it is, is harried. The second thing I'd say, it was really interesting. Colorado had two arguments before the court this year, one in late February and one the Faces Electric case. Um, and seeing how the court as an institution adapted to that change, um, I think was pretty illuminating. We had, as an advocate, we had lots of practice runs with uh, the staff at the court, making sure everything worked well. There was real, um, it, it was not an innovation driven culture. It was really making, doing its best in the moment to decide the cases it felt it had to decide uh, at the time and seeing how much work it took for the court to transition from um, in-person arguments in a very ritualized way to the telephonic arguments, I think was very illustrative of, of, of the organization that change does not come quickly. I mean, we all know that in, in, in the big picture, but as we saw uh, with June Medical, the court isn't gonna change just because of the change of the personnel. There's a real strong uh, 
emphasis on keeping things as they were and, and making very, very marginal change by a majority majority of, of the court. And I think the last thing I'll say about the, the telephonic arguments is that process matters. Um, uh, one of the takeaways from my uh, year at the court over 20 years ago was what a brilliant and thoughtful person Justice Thomas was because you saw him on a day-to-day -day basis and he was really thoughtful and was in some ways the most principled person on the court. And I was really pleased to see that this process um, of the telephonic arguments in turn allowed for people to see that more for themselves. He often asked questions because he went early and they were really good, framed the debate for the rest of the, the, the oral argument. Uh, in a way, and I think that was a real benefit that we saw uh, Justice Thomas um, play more of a role in oral argument um, as because of, of his perspective and what he brings to the conversation. Yeah, that's, Even that's though I, I, I mean, on the merits, I disagree with him quite frequently, but but he is a, a very uh, powerful and thoughtful, thoughtful justice who justice I think is unfairly maligned. Now, I, I I think that's right. And, and having him go early, I think, did frame the debate. Yeah, those were certainly very interesting discussions. I mean, you ended up having Ruth Bader Ginsburg literally conducting oral argument from a hospital bed. And they used to say that Chief Justice Rehnquist would cut off an oral advocate in the middle of the word is. And Chief Justice Roberts was, he was sticking everybody to their, their time limits. Uh, all right, Adam, your thoughts? So let me make three quick points, two of them following up on things that have just been said. It may be that the shadow docket uh, reveals a kind of jurisprudential debate, but to the public, it's not a pretty sight where you have five, four decisions with the five Republican appointees backing arguments made by Republicans, helping Republican politicians. And it's true that the court uh, doesn't like last minute changes, the so-called Purcell principle uh, disfavors them. But what's a last minute change? It's a little hard to tell. So in the Florida case, for instance, we had many months ago a preliminary injunction affirmed by a three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit. Following that three-judge panel's reasoning, the district court judge enters a permanent injunction, at which point many, many months later, uh, without any reasoning, the en banc 11th Circuit uh, stays the permanent injunction. and. You know, that, that's not obviously something happening on the eve of an election. So these are, these are hard cases and it's not a good look for the court. Um, on the telephonic arguments, I agree. I admire the court for adapting. It's not, it's a small C conservative court. It doesn't like change. And it came up with a pretty good solution. It highlighted uh, Justice Thomas's contributions. But I have to say in some ways, uh, much less satisfactory than an in-person free-for-all argument, which has an organic quality to it where the justices play off of each other. And this lockstep, uh, one-at-a-time questioning with the chief cutting people off, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's better than the alternative, which is like deciding stuff on the papers, but it's not nearly as good as a real argument. And then the final point I'd make is, there had been a lot of talk this past year from Democrats that they're so frustrated with this court that they want to expand its size, that they want to revisit the question of court packing. And, you know, court packing, of course, is a reference to FDR's attempt to increase the size of the court, which in one sense failed. The size of the court remained the same, but in another sense might have succeeded because the court started to uphold some of his New Deal programs. 
I think it's possible that in the mix of calculations that went into this very interesting term uh, was the sense that if the court didn't march in lockstep and issued a variety of decisions in various coalitions coming out in various directions, uh, it would take some of the air out of that balloon. And I sure think it did. I think it's a much harder argument uh, in July than it would have been in January for Democrats to say this court is uh, so baked into its ideological differences that they have to increase its size. Do you think that played a role? So I, you're saying, just to get to in just a second, you may want to comment on this too. So there was a very controversial brief in the Second Amendment case that I alluded to a moment ago uh, that was filed on behalf of several senators or written by, by Senator Whitehouse, in which he basically said, you know, pay attention to what the people are telling you and look at all of these court packing plans that are going on there, you know, court heal thyself. Uh, and of course, they ended up moving out that case. And you're the first person I've, I've heard who said, well, maybe that worked. Uh, so I, I, I stand by my general argument. I think the White House brief was powerfully out of line and counterproductive. I, I think this is not the kind of point you make head on. It's, it's an atmospheric point. But I, I, I found myself thinking, if only as a matter of litigation strategy, the White House brief was poorly conceived. Jess, what are your thoughts? Well, of course, I you know principally agree with everyone else in our in our group think session. But uh, <laughs> specifically, though, uh, I, I I'd say that you know to, to amplify what what Adam said about the you know the court packing specifically, I think that uh, the the Chief Justice bought himself a fair degree of credibility should there be a change of administration next year when he starts issuing rulings against uh, a Biden administration because it, you know he's really insulated himself against the idea that he is simply the the tool of one party or another now of course if there were a vacancy if if justice ginsburg or, or somebody else had to uh, step down from the the court uh, prior to a new administration coming in and there was a very rapid filling of that seat uh, over the objection of the incoming uh, government, the court packing idea might get more air back into it. But assuming that the personnel changes uh, don't occur, uh, yeah, I think I think there's there'll be very little support for that with all the other things that uh, have to go on uh, in, 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 the, in the Capitol. Um, uh, and I think, though, you know, we could expect that if there were a different administration next year, there would be a lot of issues coming up where the chief would naturally find himself in opposition. Uh, you know, I mean, we look at one area where the chief has been very much an advocate for, uh, you know, a, a colorblind uh, government when it comes to uh, the Voting Rights Act or affirmative action or, or school integration. You know, we, we can expect there would be uh, some moves by the federal government in those areas next year if, it, if the Democrats win. Uh, and we could expect, a, I think, a very skeptical eye from the Chief Justice when those measures come up uh, before the, the, uh, the Supreme Court. Um, I did want to say uh, just a, a couple other, you know, odds and ends that you mentioned. The, the Second Amendment case that the court, uh, you know, got rid of, it's interesting because that seemed to be one that was designed with, with, with a Justice Kennedy on the court, with a very sort of, you know, very uh, strange uh, outlier law that was just weird enough that Justice Kennedy might be willing to, to strike it down and thereby sort of create a pathway to more Second Amendment challenges. By the time that case finally made it to the Supreme Court, there was no need to, to kind of pussyfoot around. You have, you know, new, new members who are much more aggressive on Second Amendment issues, and I think you could have a much more direct 
uh, uh, challenge to uh, uh, gun regulation than, than this uh, sort of oddball since yield New York uh, regulation about not taking your gun to firing ranges outside the, the five boroughs. The shadow docket case that I thought was worth worth looking at a little bit actually was not a death penalty case or, or a voting yeah, rights case. Or, or it, was right. the, um, it was the public health order case from California where the chief justice joined the liberal wing to uphold uh, Governor Newsom and, and, and San Diego County public health orders limiting uh, attendance uh, at churches alongside other uh, public venues. And that had been challenged, uh, and it was a upheld by the lower courts, but the Supreme Court, it was a 5-4 decision, and the Chief Justice wrote a, a single justice opinion where he basically, you know, to the, perhaps to the surprise of or annoyance of political scientists, sort of put himself on the, on the side of uh, uh, um, epidemiological science. And he just sort of said the public, the governor had strong reason for making these distinctions, and he was upholding it, and it was very much a, you know, follow the science follow the rational decisions of of the of the the governor uh the dissent by justice kavanaugh completely sidestepped all those rationales it simply disregarded all the arguments the state had made about why uh, a congregation over several hours that's uh, singing and, and praying is not like running in and out of the supermarket he, he literally compared a church service to shopping at the supermarket uh which was you know, the, the, the church's position, Chief Justice completely diametrically opposed to that view of the law. So I thought it was an interesting to see that division between the other conservatives and Chief Justice on the, on the public health order uh, during the pandemic. And that might tell us where other uh, cases involving public health orders might end up uh, should they reach the, the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think the chief is making it pretty clear he doesn't like these cases coming up on an emergency basis. And I sort of read that opinion and said, it basically cried out and said, hey, I'm a judge, I'm not a doctor. What do you, what do you want me to do? I, in, I, in light of your statement about the Second Amendment case in the waning couple of minutes we have left, were you surprised that the court turned down uh, all of the pending Second Amendment cases? They had, there are others that are, that are percolating their way through the lower courts uh, now, but they had several that they could have taken. Uh, that would have gotten around the mootness problem from the set, you know, from the New York City case. Were you surprised at that? I was um, very surprised hmm. by it. Oh, go ahead, Jess. No, I was going. I was going to say I was surprised in one sense uh, because there's a lot of appetite on the court to get to those. I think there certainly are four votes that are very interested in moving forward on the the Heller doctrine uh, and the McDonald doctrine that they laid out uh, now so so long ago. Um, on the other hand, <clears throat> I could also imagine. You know, the chief justice and some other justices saying this really isn't the right time. Uh, and uh, I mean, in other words, I didn't see a lack of interest or an implicit affirmance of where the lower courts were, but perhaps there was a, a bandwidth. There was a bandwidth ready to to take to wade into this right now. But uh, uh, but had they but uh, but had they accepted the cases, I, I certainly would have been uh, completely unsurprised. Adam. So there's a strategic question here. Uh, of course, it only takes four votes to grant cert. And we know there are four votes. Four, four justices have said that it's time, uh, the four most conservative justices. And their failure to grant cert really suggests that they're unclear whether they have a fifth vote. And that fifth vote has to be John Roberts. So in that respect, the mass cert denials were quite telling. Well, I knew this time would fly by, uh, and it was as uh, enlightening as uh, I knew it would be. So I want to thank our audience. 
for joining us. This, uh, this webinar will be posted within 48 hours. So please, if you want to watch it again or share it, uh, please do so. Uh, and uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for, uh, for another version of Scholars and Scribes. It was great being with you.